Well, it is always a joy to open the Word with you. And if you would please turn to Luke chapter 4. We are concluding a two-part uh, two series that spanned over three months. So, I believe we will finish it today. Because we don't want to end, finish it in March. So, we are looking at the temptations of Christ in Luke chapter 4. And if you would just join me in, in prayer again, I always want to, um, I, I, I want to pray before I preach in order to ask for God's help publicly. And so, would you go to the Lord with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, you are the giver of all good things, and you will deserve all the glory for who you are and for the gospel. And I pray now that you would help me by your Holy Spirit to unfold your word in a way that helps and builds up your people and that draws sinners to Jesus. And I pray these things in his name. Amen. So, Luke chapter 4. In 2004 B.C., the Roman general Publius Cornelius Scipio was sent with a large force of 20,000 men to North Africa. Scipio and his men were soon confronted, however, with the Carthaginian army of 90,000 men. Scipio quickly set up camp and started developing a plan to defeat his much larger enemy. Because the Carthaginian army was divided into two camps, Scipio sent envoys to discuss terms of peace into each camp but in order to gather information about each camp's layout. Each envoy was joined by a group of servants who were actually Roman soldiers in disguise. During one particular envoy visit, one of the servants mistakenly released a horse in, from their group. What appeared as an accident, however, was actually intentional. As the Car- Carthaginian soldiers watched and laughed as the frantic servants ran about the camp in an attempt to bring this horse back in, the servants, Roman centurions in disguise, were gathering intelligence about the layout and structural weaknesses of the enemy camp. Their crafty work of espionage revealed that the enemy camp buildings were built out of wood and reeds, material that was especially flammable. Armed with this intelligence, Scipio organized a nighttime attack and burned each of the camps to each camp to the ground, destroying over 40,000 soldiers of the opposing army thus ending the standoff. What appeared as weakness actually resulted in great victory. Today's title of the message is Enemy Intel State Strategies How to Overcome Them. We are uh, talking about state strategies and how we have come to know them. And now that we have this knowledge, we can rightly make our way through Satan's temptation. When the Son of God clothed himself with humanity, he took the form of a servant. Unlike these Roman centurions in disguise, however, the Son of God was truly a servant. He was truly human. It may have appeared as weakness, but when the Son of God was led into the wilderness to endure the temptations of Satan, he was accomplishing victories. In these temptations, Satan is tempting the Son to turn his back on the mission that God had planned for him. But in his treachery, Satan utterly fails because these temptations actually confirm Jesus in his unswerving obedience. Jesus, the Son of God, will not be swayed from his obedience to the Father. But also, in tempting Jesus, Satan's schemes are exposed for all of us to see. 
It's one of the world's biggest backfires. Satan thought he had Jesus, but it actually came out for his advantage and for our advantage. Jesus enters the camp of the enemy, clothed in humanity, appearing weak but unswervingly strong, and now we know exactly how Satan operates. And last time, if you joined us, we looked at the first temptation. And today I want to just review that briefly and then get into the next two temptations and to learn what how Jesus handled them and what that means for us. So just, just briefly, if you weren't here, just remind us too, why are we looking at this text? This text tells us not only that we have a Savior who fulfilled righteousness in our place, but also it tells us how Satan operates. And I had uh, Bob, and I'm so great, grateful that he read that text this morning, because I want us to recognize and always be reminded that Satan is real. That is a strange-sounding statement in this day and age. But Satan is real, and he hates Christians. In fact, he just hates anyone made in the image of God. His goal, if you're a Christian, is to destroy your faith. His goal today, if you're here and you're not a Christian, is to keep you from Jesus. He is real and he is actively working. But we need to look at something here just briefly. If you would turn with me back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Jesus' answers to Satan, as we will see, are strategic. They're specific. They are intentional. He's not just pulling some scripture out of his hat and saying, I'll make this work. He's going specifically back to certain texts in the Old Testament to show us that he is doing something that God's people could not do previously. So we're in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He's going to take his first two, I'm sorry, his second two responses to the temptation he'll take from Deuteronomy 6. The first response to temptation is from Deuteronomy chapter 8. But what's going on in Deuteronomy 6 through 8? The Lord had just led Israel out of Egypt with great power and signs and wonders, and they had spent 40 years wandering through the wilderness, and they were about to enter the promised land. And they're supposed to learn something valuable while they're wandering through the wilderness. This was in chapter 8, verse 3. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know that was in, what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you to let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of from the mouth of God. And you might recognize that statement because that is the statement that Jesus used to respond to Satan's first temptation. Israel had failed this test, but the Son of God, as we saw a few weeks ago, succeeded in the face of hunger and temptation and demonstrated that he, in fact, learned that valuable lesson that man does not live by bread alone. But backing up into Deuteronomy 6, we find that Moses is giving Israel instructions that they might obey, things might go well for them in the promised land. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to do these commandments that it may go well with you, and you may multiply greatly in, as the Lord your God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. That's chapter 6, verse 3. But notice the instructions in verses 10 through 17. It says in verse 10, When the Lord brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, to Jacob to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, with houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, 
Then take care lest you forget the, forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You might recognize that. That came from Jesus' response to, or Jesus took that text in His response to Satan's second temptation. And then again in verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as they tested Him at Massah. This, these are the words that Jesus used in His third response to Satan. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Massah was the place where the people of Israel grumbled and complained against the Lord because they didn't have any water and they accused, of, accused God of not doing good to them. But in each case, Israel failed over and over and over by worshiping other gods and putting the Lord to the test. But Jesus comes along and he does what Adam and what Noah and what Abraham and the fathers and all of Israel could not do. He obeys in everything. You might be wondering, why does this have to do with anything that you're talking about? It's only this, that this text is showing that before Jesus serves as our example of how to defeat temptation, He is first our representative standing in our place successfully defeating temptation. Unless Jesus is your substitute first, you can forget about handling temptation. Jesus must be your righteousness first. He must fulfill all righteousness in your place before then you can start to think about how you might defeat temptation. Jesus goes into enemy territory and he successfully defeats Satan at every turn. The gospel comes first. You trust in Christ as your righteousness and you follow him a life of holiness and obedience. If you are here today and you think that you can overcome temptation by your willpower or just by adding a little Jesus to your life or a little religion or a little church or a little Bible... You will be sorely disappointed. You must come to Jesus as your full substitute before you can start to become holy. Seeking holiness without Jesus does not please God. It angers God and it inflames your sinful desires. Well, now that we've introduced these things briefly about the first temptation, it's, we, we saw this turning back to Luke chapter 4. We saw this uh, a couple months ago. The first temptation, what is Satan doing? The text tells us that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. He returned from the Jordan. He's led by the Spirit in the wilderness. So that the Spirit is doing this. Satan's not organizing this. The Father is organizing this in order to confirm His Son in righteousness. And He's wandering in the wilderness, being tempted by the devil for 40 days. And He ate nothing during those days. And He's incredibly hungry. And the devil comes to Him and says, If you are the Son of God, demand this stone to become bread. That's his words, it's Satan's words. If you're the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. What's happening here? What's the temptation? Well, the temptation, as we saw a few months ago, is Satan is telling Jesus, satisfy your hunger by circumventing God's provision of your needs, by providing for yourself on your terms and on your timetable. Come off the road to the cross for just a brief moment, stop the suffering, and get some bread for yourself, Jesus. Now remember, Jesus was excruciatingly hungry at this point. This would have been a true and genuine temptation. And bread was a legitimate need. There's nothing wrong with bread. God created hunger and He created the food to satisfy it. But Satan is tempting Jesus to grasp that provision, not by trusting and waiting upon the Father, 
but by doing it on his own terms, to come off that road to the cross and to get some bread for himself. And we, we talked about this. We said that our temptations are just like Christ in this sense. The story about Jesus' temptation is not a story just about stones and about bread. It's about provision. And it's not just about provision. It's about provision of legitimate appetites. Bread in Jesus' day was everything. And Satan will tempt us to fulfill our legitimate appetites for food, for marital intimacy, for provision, even for earthly enjoyment in ways that are illegitimate and contrary to God's word. And in order to overcome these strategies, we must by grace and by grace and grace the truth that our identity is in Christ and God's promise to provide for us now and ultimately in the kingdom. And we looked at these in a few in, in a few categories. We did we talked about food and how it's possible that Satan will tempt us to binge and purge, it'll tempt us to gluttony, it'll tempt us to tempt us to build our life around food and build our identity in food. And we talked about we talked about marriage and sexual intimacy and how Satan will attempt us to fulfill those good and God-given desires illegitimately and contrary to God's word. And we talk about financial provision and how Satan will tempt us to, by stoking desire after more and more material wealth. He'll tempt us towards dishonesty at work and dishonesty on our uh, taxes and so on. He'll tempt us with discontent. But in Christ we have everything that we need, even when it comes to earthly enjoyment, even when it comes to provision. Jesus came through this temptation, this first temptation, by keeping his eye on the truth that his Father's word was worth more than even his legitimate earthly desires. Man does not live by bread alone, was Jesus' answer. There's something even better, even something something worth even more than my legitimate appetites, appetites namely, obedience to the Word of God. The Word of God is worth more to my soul. Jesus told His disciples in John chapter 4, my food, what drives me, what compels me, what feeds me, is to do the will of the Father. Jesus came through this temptation by recognizing that His Father's temptation or discipline was out of love. Not hatred. His hunger did not bring him to ask, Is the Lord among us like Israel had asked so long ago? Christ knew that the Lord had brought him in to, out into the wilderness to do him good in the end. That is what God promised Israel. They couldn't see it. The perfect Son of God sees it. He believes it. He makes his way all, through, all the way through the temptation. And as Christians, we will overcome Satan's temptation in these realms, in the realm of provision, by recognizing that our status in Christ provides us with the promise that we, God will always provide for our needs and that a future of perfect provision is coming to all believers and that the road to glory, and this is key, the road to glory, though full of joy, is also marked by suffering and self-denial and that tasting the satisfaction of trusting the word of God and doing the will of God is better even than food. So that is the first temptation, and that's how uh, Christ comes through that temptation. Well, let's look at the second temptation. Satan's going to ratchet things up here. Verse 5, it says, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be I will all be yours. 
what's this temptation? Here, here, here's the temptation. What, what is Satan doing here with Jesus? First of all, he's exaggerating his authority just a wee bit. But that's, that's beside the point. What is he doing? He's getting Jesus. He wants Jesus to receive the kingdom of this world by worshiping Satan. Instead of inheriting these kingdoms according to God's plans and God's terms. These kingdoms belong to the Son. It's promised in the Old Testament. It's even promised in Luke. In the beginning of Luke, we're told that Jesus is the Son of the Most High. He will inherit the throne of David. These kingdoms are not Satan's. They belong to the Son. Satan has exaggerated his authority. He has some authority, but it's, it's, he's exaggerating here. He's the father of lies. But he's tempting Jesus to grasp at this inheritance now, something that is rightfully Jesus's. But God has laid out a plan that Jesus will receive these kingdoms by first going to a cross, by first walking down a path of suffering and self-denial and bearing the sins of his people. Then comes the crown, but not before the cross. Just like David before him, this son of God will have to walk through exile before he gets to inheritance. He'll have to walk through suffering before he gets to glory. He'll have to walk through a cross before he gets to a crown. Just like David, when he was stranded out in the wilderness, being hunted down by Saul, though he was the rightful king. And just like David, Jesus is not going to grasp at it himself. You'll remember that David himself, even though he was waiting on the Father, he could not do it perfectly, could he? When he had had Saul trapped in that cave, he even cut off a piece of Saul's garment to show that Saul who was in charge and that smote David's conscience and he couldn't uh, uh, live with the fact that he had done that and he knew he had done wrong because he had laid hands on the Lord's anointed. So even David, though he waited for the Father to supply his needs, did not do it perfectly. The Son of God comes along and he waits to receive these kingdoms in the right way. Like the previous temptation, Satan is tempting Jesus to bypass the cross, bypass suffering, bypass self-denial, bypass patient waiting on God to fulfill his promises. Get your kingdom now by simply worshiping me. Why would you wait? Right? This word authority is is interesting. And, and you know, you can kind of tell if you study uh, what this word means, uh, how Luke uses his word in his gospel, what he's doing here. He's making it clear that Satan is really overreached here because the word authority in, in, in the gospel of Luke is applied to God and it's applied to Jesus. Jesus and the uh, father have the authority. Satan has a little authority. He has some authority. He is the God of this world, is he not? But Jesus knew he didn't have ultimate authority. The gift of immediate inheritance, even if Satan could give it, it would have been short lived. Jesus, with wisdom, sees through this offer. He knows Satan is the father of lies, and the situation is no different. Well, what is Jesus' answer? Now, having said all that, Jesus' answer is stunning. Jesus' answer goes like this. Jesus answers him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Why is this so interesting? Because Jesus doesn't respond with promises made uh, to him about a kingdom. I mean, why not just go back to the Old Testament and say, I'm sorry, Satan, you're wrong. Mm, I'm inheriting the, the kingdom in, in due time. They're mine. He doesn't do that. Why? He responds with a text that answers directly Satan's command to be worshipped. And this is key. 
Why? Because Jesus knows that God will not fulfill his promises by violating his commandments. And Christ knew that if he sought first the kingdom of God and worshipped his father above all, all the promises were going to take care of themselves. He had a priority on worshiping the father and that is how he answers Satan. Well, what about us? What do we learn about Satan's strategies and how to fight them for us? What is our temptation? Our first temptation and when we see it, when uh, Satan is uh, telling Jesus to make bread was provision. Now, what is this? This is the temptation to power. Just like Jesus, Satan is tempting us to grasp our inheritance of power and authority early by worshiping him or an idol or a self. And frankly, he'll take any of these. Just so long as you're not worshiping God. We have been promised through Christ that after walking the path of a cross, we will someday receive a kingdom in which we will be rulers with Christ. Paul says that we will someday judge angels. That's not a throwaway verse. Someday we'll be sitting or standing together judging angels. We will have authority and power. John tells us that someday we will reign with Christ in Revelation 20. That's the promise we have from our Father. There is a kingdom of coming. We will inherit it with the Son of God. We will have authority. We will have a God-given position that will only be used for good, the good of others and for the glory of God, but in the future. Satan, however, will tempt us to pursue power and position in order to lord it over people, to flex our authority, to get our inheritance now, to seek power and position apart from Christ and apart from the Father's placement of us in his kingdom. Satan will tempt us to scheme and to lie and manipulate circumstances in order to get ourselves in positions of authority, of leadership, of influence at our jobs, and even in the church. Satan will tempt us to pursue earthly greatness now instead of seeking kingdom greatness by humbling ourselves and becoming servants to others. A servant does the will of the master without complaint and without a desire for recognition from anyone other than who? His master. And I just think one of the way that this temptation afflicts us in our day and age, and let's just see if this rings true for you at your place of work or in your place in life right now. One of the ways that Satan is causing many Christians, I think, to veer off the course uh, of obedience is by inflaming their temptation to self-promotion. I mean, self-promotion is the law of the land in this day and age. You want to get ahead? Promote yourself. You want to get ahead? Put yourself forward. You want to get ahead? Put down others. Promote yourself. It's rampant. Satan tempted Jesus to take the shortcut to his rightful place, his rightful place of position and authority. Bypass the cross. Bypass suffering. Worship me. And you can have your place of authority and power and honor now. And he will work similar havoc in your life if you are not careful, if I'm not careful. And this is something that I wrestle mightily with, so I'm preaching to myself here, and you just get to sit in here and listen for a little bit. Rather than taking the long road of diligence and faithful day-to-day labor, unrecognized labor, Satan will tempt you to manipulate circumstances, lie about your credentials, and promote yourself in the most unfitting ways in order to secure for yourself that place of authority and recognition. But scripture tells us, let another praise you. Proverbs 27 says, 
Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. And then Jesus tells us repeatedly throughout the Gospels that the one who exalts, exalts himself will be humbled. Instead, we should be laboring diligently, quietly, and looking forward to when Jesus says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little, and I will put you over what? Much. Right? Now, perhaps you aren't interested in global fame or authority, or even corporate authority and power. Satan will tempt you to grasp for that authority even in Christ's church, even here. Or if you're visiting in your local church. He'll tempt you to build a little kingdom unto yourself and to gather a few followers Don't think that just because you're not on Twitter and Facebook promoting yourself day in and day out that you're not building a little kingdom of followers. One author puts it this way. I think this is incredibly insightful. He says, and I quote, often we're deceived into thinking self-exaltation isn't a weak point for us because we don't see ourselves clamoring for global power and celebrity. But kingdom and power are relative terms. The satanic powers don't care what size kingdom you want or what quantity of glory is enough for you to bow the knee they just want to see you worship something other than god to get what you want satan knows humanity he's seen your type before and he is tailor-making temptations that were that will fit your proclivities that will fit your desires and he will tempt you to grasp at your inheritance early by seeking glory even on a very small scale but now, if I might just reach out a little bit more here, Satan will also tempt us, and this is so huge, especially as we're coming up on an election year. He will mistake, cause us, he'll tempt us to mistake America for the kingdom of God. Satan will tempt us to think that all is lost when the wind doesn't blow in our political direction. He will tempt us to turn the church into a political powerhouse, to look to cultural affluence and clout to push our so-called Christian values instead of trusting the word of God and proclaiming the gospel in the power of the spirit. He will tempt us to despise our status as those who are not wise, who are not mighty, and pursue intellectual prestige and acclaim and recognition in the academy or elsewhere. This isn't to say that we shouldn't pursue excellence and that Christian excellence won't lead to recognition. Oftentimes it will. But even this good desire can be overturned by Satan when he can tempt us to grasp glory now rather than waiting for God-bestowed glory in the future. Often our pursuit of excellence is out of a desire for personal recognition, but it really should be, our work should be done diligently for our master and out of love for our neighbor. What this means practically, what this means practically, and this is, this is important to hear because Satan's strategy uh, to, to gain leverage in your life doesn't mean he's not willing to give up something. He is. He was willing to give up kingdoms just as long as Jesus didn't go to the cross. Just so long as Jesus bowed the knee to anybody but the Father. What this means practically is that Satan will be happy to give you everything you are striving for. A well-recognized pastoral ministry. Children that are Obedient, morally upright, and intelligent, able to quote Latin and Greek. A church full of decent and socially concerned citizens, so long as we stop preaching the gospel of a crucified and risen Savior. He will give you all that you want. 
Just give up the gospel. That's all you got to do. If you are willing to give up the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection and the, and the shame and the scorn that goes along with it, Satan is happy to give you the kingdoms. Satan's strategy will get us to grasp for rights and privileges of our inheritance now. Position, prestige, and as we'll see in the next temptation, protection and vindication. So let's look at temptation number three. Temptation number three. Satan took him up to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What's going on here? Well, we need to note a few things now because Satan has ratcheted up his strategy even more. Jesus has used scripture twice. What is Satan going to do? He's going to use scripture. Two can play at that game, he's thinking. But as the commentator notes, the mere use of biblical words and promises may not convey God's will. That is vital for us because we do not fight temptation with scripture. Uh-oh. We do not fight temptation merely with Scripture. We fight temptation with Scripture rightly used. Satan will give you Scripture all day long to feed your appetites. Satan will give you Scripture all day long, wrongly understood and wrongly interpreted to feed your appetites. He's been doing that for millennia. Doing it right here. You're wrestling with self-control with eating, and you got a text that comes along that says... Eat, let's, let us eat, drink, and for tomorrow we die. It's just not the right text for you to be quoting to Satan. So it's not just Scripture. It's Scripture rightly used. Well, I think many of us recognize that. Let's just say a few things about how Satan is using Scripture here. This is vital. Let's, let's expose him for the liar that he is. First, he may apply promises to your specific situation by taking those promises out of context, as we'll see in a moment. That's what he's doing here. He may use promises for protection to override texts that include the possibility of suffering for the, uh, for the righteous. That's what's happening here. Psalm 91. That's the text that Satan is using here. He may remove obedience from the picture while applying a particular text. So he's just going to take obedience right out of there. Just give you promises of, 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 of enjoyment or, or whatever. Protection. And four, he may just not quote the whole passage. That's what's happening here. What's the temptation? What is the temptation that he, he's doing? Now that we've talked about how he uses scripture, what's the temptation? The temptation is this. To get God to prove to you, Jesus, his promises and special relationship to you on man's terms, not God's terms. The temptation is to get God to prove his promises and special relationship to Jesus on man's terms, not God's terms. Jesus' answer is straight out of the word of God and he uses it rightly. You shall not put your Lord God to the test. Now, where does this come from? We've already seen it, but we're going we're gonna to go back there just briefly. You don't have to turn there. Jesus refers to this text in Deuteronomy 6.16 in, in, instead of using Satan's use of, of scripture, which is interesting. He just quotes scripture rightly and that 
confronts Satan's wrong use of Scripture. The quote in Deuteronomy 6.16 refers back to the episode at Massah. At Massah, Israel wondered if God was really among them. What was happening then? They had been wandering through the wilderness, but they were wondering if God was among them. And despite the fact that God had delivered them out of Egypt with great and many miracles, they say in Exodus 17.2, it says in Exodus 17.2, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you test the Lord? Why did Moses see this uh, request for water as testing the Lord? Didn't Israel need water? And it seems similar to the first temptation, doesn't it? The need for bread, that's legitimate. The need for water, well, that's legitimate. Was Israel's problem actual thirsting for water? No, it wasn't sinful to desire water. But after the Lord had demonstrated his power in Egypt, the children of Israel should have trusted that he was going to care for them. They may have been thirsty and tired, but God had shown them that he was for them, that he was good. Their grumbling amounted to saying, quote, and this is right out of Exodus 17, 17. They say this, is the Lord among us or not? Israel tested the Lord in Exodus 17 at Massah in that they did not trust that he was going to take care of them and do good to them in the end. In the wilderness, Israel craved water and they were unwilling to walk through the trouble of the wilderness for their own good. They would have been, they would have rather been in slavery in Egypt with their bellies full than they would have been suffering a little hunger with their heavenly father free in the wilderness. But the best thing for them was to learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It was best for them to learn that God was there for his, their provider, that he was good, that he was the one true God, that he will brook no rival, and that he would bring them into a good land and finally after a time of testing. What does this have to do with Jesus's third temptation? Well, Jesus uh, was being tempted by Satan to test his father to prove his special relationship to the father. In his use of Psalm 91, you don't need to turn there, but in his use of Psalm 91, Satan is doing something very similar here. That is the text that Satan is using. He's using Psalm 91 to get Jesus to trip up here. He's doing something similar to what was happening in uh, Massah. The Israelites wanted water and they grumbled because they wondered if the Lord was really for them. They wanted God to provide, prove his allegiance to them on their own terms. As if full redemption from Egypt wasn't enough. And Satan is tempting Jesus to prove that God is for him on Jesus' own terms, or on man's own terms, rather. But Jesus would have none of it. He remains tethered to Scripture, and he exposes Satan's self-serving use of Scripture. You shall not put the Lord to, to the test and get him to act to save you on your own terms. Besides, and this is what's vital in Psalm 91 the protection promised in psalm 91 is protection in the course of obedience not absolute protection according to my own terms psalm 91 teaches that evil will not ultimately triumph over god's anointed that is true and that god would be with him yet in trouble psalm 91 never taught god's absolute protection from trouble and from suffering, but God's 
ultimate protection from suffering. And Satan is trying to get Jesus to grasp at immediate, absolute protection from trouble. God doesn't promise that. He doesn't promise absolute protection. He promises ultimate protection. The difference is, is that to be safe from absolute protection means no trouble in this life at all. Ultimate protection is what Paul says is that the glory that we will someday experience will make the, the suffering that we experienced here seem like nothing. But there will be trouble here. There will be suffering here. So Satan is trying to get Jesus to grasp at this idea of absolute protection. He's, he's getting, he's tempting, uh, Satan, or Satan is tempting Jesus to come off the path, path of the cross and of suffering. And he's doing the same thing with us. He is tempting us like he tempted Jesus to get God to prove our relationship to him on our terms rather than his terms. Instead of finding satisfaction, in Christ's broken body and bloody death, we demand that God prove that he loves us through miracles, inordinate wealth, an easy life, practical solutions to every earthly problem, a life of enviable adventure, a boastworthy career, a spouse, and so on. But Christ shows us a much better way. The Father loves us, and he has proven it once for all in Christ. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he proves it every day by providing what we need. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, your mercies are new every morning. Is it wrong to desire that our needs be met? That God would provide for our legitimate desires? No, we are told to pray that way in scripture and by Jesus himself. Is it wrong to know that the uh, desire to know that the father loves us? Of course not, but scripture turns us to rely on God's word and what he has done in Christ to know this love for certain and to seek his kingdom first and foremost. The father loves us. What else must he do except for send his own son on your behalf? He loves you. Seeking miracles and wealth and a comfortable life as indications, as signs that God loves you, that you are his special child, is a sign that you do not believe his word fully and that his love is so abundant, you do not believe that his love is so abundant that he sent his only son for you. Ultimately, what Satan is tempting to do with us, with Jesus, is to tempt us to come off the path of faith in obedience. We test the Lord when we grumble because our grumbling indicates that we think life should go differently. We, when we grumble, we indicate that our life with God and our wandering through the wilderness should be different. Namely, it should be without suffering. When we grumble and complain, we're essentially saying, if you really love me, God, if I'm really your son, then I wouldn't be suffering like this. And not only that, but your work of redemption on my half and your daily provision, it's not enough for me to know that you love me. And then Satan will also tempt us to seek absolute protection in this life rather than trusting God for ultimate protection he'll tempt us to think that we're not god's child if we suffer but he's doing something else here there's something else going on with satan and his temptation of jesus that we have to recognize satan and this ties in with the the last thing that we just said in terms of uh tempting jesus to get absolute protection he's also tempting him to get his vindication 
now. Jesus, don't wait for the resurrection and the final judgment for your vindication. Get God to show everyone now who you really are. Shut their mouths. Give them an unforgettable spectacle and everyone will know who you are. Why go through the grief of being persecuted and ignored and ridiculed and crucified? Secure a more spectacular testimony in the front of everyone and get your vindication now. Settle this once and for all. Throw yourself off this building. The angels will swoop by, set you down in front of everybody, and it'll be amazing. And everyone will believe you. And you can skip the whole cross thing. But this is not the way that God will vindicate his son. Romans 1.4 tells us that the, the, the vindication comes in the resurrection. When Jesus rises from the dead and his foes are vanquished. And then it will be consummated. His vindication will be consummated at the final judgment when all of his enemies are put under his feet. That cannot happen unless the son of God goes to the cross. And Satan knows that. He wanted Jesus to get vindication now. Prove everyone wrong. Why just why deal with all this ridicule? Secure a spectacular miracle other than the resurrection and get people to believe in you now. And he, Satan will do the same thing with us. He will tempt us to grasp our vindication now instead of patiently waiting for the resurrection and the final judgment. Right now, right now, just turn on the news for about five minutes. And you will learn, if you don't know this already from your own experience, that the world sees the gospel as foolishness. God's word is a myth. Sadly, many evangelicals are buying into that. The world sees your faith as fantasy and as superstition. True godliness is persecuted and Jesus' followers are hated and maligned. The veracity of the Bible is constantly questioned. I'm so weary of the Bible being questioned day in and day out and day in and day out. And so much of my uh, seminary studies was be, was confronting this kind of thinking and this kind of teaching. And Satan knows this and he will tempt you to grasp at your vindication now instead of waiting for God to vindicate you at the resurrection of the righteous in the final judgment. Here's a, here's a concrete example. You may be wearied, just like I am, at how vigorous and how often the world attacks the Christian faith. And you may want to vindicate yourself now and prove beyond a shadow of anyone's doubt that the Bible is true. Not so much because you want other people to be saved, but because you are tired of looking foolish in the eyes of the world. You will want to win every debate and have the last word because you can't stand the thought of others thinking that you are anti-intellectual and believing all this superstition. But if that desire in you grows, then you will become angry at your uh, opponents when they present their arguments. You might even begin to twist the evidence of Christianity, believe it or not, and make foolish claims that aren't even true in order to vindicate yourself in the eyes of others. You might even begin to misrepresent certain opposing positions for the sake of the truth. How do we overcome this temptation? By constantly reminding our hearts that there's coming a day when the whole world... Let's just let's just picture this for a moment. Those of us who are tempted to get our vindication now. 
There is coming a day when the whole world will behold Christ, the resurrected Christ, and they will behold his people standing with them, resurrected and about to enter the kingdom for eternity. And they will see forever that you were right. Or better, that God was right, that Christ was right, that scripture was right. Just like you always said and believed, your vindication, it's coming. It's just not yet. Should we present the gospel with excellent biblical arguments? Yes. Most of my ministry is is doing that uh, for the college students. But we should not put our hope for vindication in those arguments. Until Jesus comes back, the word of the cross will be foolishness to an unbelieving world, and we must bear the reproach of Christ. The word of the cross isn't foolishness because it's irrational or because it's a leap in the dark. It's foolishness because it's weak and bloody and devastating to human pride. See, we want our vindication now because we want protection from physical harm, emotional harm, persecution, even the pain of disagreeing with others. Christ believed in his, in his future vindication, so he didn't need to test his father to prove it now, and neither do we. The common thread that connects all of these temptations is this. Satan is tempting Jesus, and he's tempting you to doubt your status as God's son, as God's daughter, and to find fulfillment of promises for provision, power, and protection on earthly terms rather than God's terms. What does this look like? Well, we talked about this a couple of months ago. Provision, we'll be tempted to provide for our legitimate desires in illegitimate ways. We'll be tempted to become discontent with God's provision and God's word. We'll be tempted to forget and deny that God is doing everything for our good and that he will provide for us. We'll be tempted to come off the road of seeking first his kingdom and remembering that all of these things will be added unto us. We'll be tempted to doubt God's provision and to get that provision from him his way and on his terms. We'll be tempted to power, to grasp at our inheritance now and to craft ways to put ourselves in places of authority and prestige and, and recognition instead of waiting patiently for God to work on our behalf. But if you're in Christ, you don't have to manipulate circumstances because you know that your father is placing you where he wants you and he is giving you what you need. And he'll tempt us to crave and seek after a safe and comfortable life. We'll be tempted to pursue absolute protection instead of trusting God for ultimate protection. He will look he will tempt you to look for protection from ultimate or absolute protection vindication and absolute protection but if you are in christ you don't have to pursue a comfortable safe life because your eternal comfort and safety is coming and we need eyes to see this let's pray that god would give us eyes to see this if you're tempted to look for protection from attacks on your faith or from people disregarding you because of your faith in christ Look to the resurrection and the final judgment for your vindication rather than proving yourself right in arguments and debates. You don't need to get the last word. The last word will be spoken by Christ when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. When he tells his enemies to depart from me, I never knew you. And when he tells his people to come into his presence for eternity, that's the last word. You don't need it now. 
You don't need justice served for all the wrongs committed against you in this life. That justice is served at the cross and it will be served in the future. And isn't this how scripture itself tells us how to conduct our lives? Just listen to as I read 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. Now, who is to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you do suffer for the righteous for righteousness sake's sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that, we, if that would be God's will, than for doing evil. Well, how do we overcome temptation? A few points of application very quickly before we, we close. First, become familiar with Satan's strategies. Become familiar with Satan's strategies. We've studied them here. Make it a priority to get in the scripture to understand how he is coming after you. We know his strategies. They're revealed. There's, there's nothing. No, there's nowhere else you need to look. Not in some special book anywhere. They're revealed in scripture. We have everything we need to know about our enemy's whereabouts and his strategy. We have all the knowledge that we need. Become familiar with Satan's strategies. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Secondly, this is the second thing, gain insight into your own heart. What are you tempted toward? What are your desires that can be easily twisted? What are your strengths that can be easily used against you? Know your own heart. Yes, the heart is desperately wicked. But we also have the Holy Spirit who gives us insight into our sin and into our own heart. So gain insight into your own heart. What is it that tempts you? What are your temptations? What do you drift towards when you're allowed to drift? Gain insight into your own heart. Number three, recognize that the fight is ongoing until the day you die. If you think that the fight ends, the fight against lust ends when you are 60, you're going to be discouraged when you're 61. If you think the fight against, fight against temptation uh, happens or ends after your midlife crisis, you're going to be sorely disappointed. It does not end ever. Your desires change, and so Satan's strategies against you might uh, be modified, but the temptation, the fight, never ends. You have to be aware of that, or you'll be blown off course. And that ties into the fourth one. Beware of tranquility. So many of us mistake the divine peace of Christ for tranquility. They are not the same. And if you mistake one for the other, you may be destroyed. And this is what I mean. I quoted a, a gentleman earlier in this message, and I want to quote him again. But he's speaking about uh, a situation where he was given some insight on the, the way that, that cows or um, livestock is, is, is turned into actually meat that we consume. And I'm not going to be too graphic with this illustration. But, but the process, that, uh, the, the way that a, a cow is brought to, uh, to the place where he is actually slaughtered, it has to be a very careful process so that the cow doesn't become uh, restless and, and upset and, and, and cause trouble. And so they've actually designed these kinds of conveyor belts where they, they lead the, the cow along 
this line and the cow is led gently along and it, they actually make these these the sides of these walls feel like a mother's nu- uh, nuzzling touch and so the, the the cow is led along this way and then slowly he thinks he's or uh, the cow thinks he's going back home and or back to the place where he came from and and uh, he, all of a sudden now the cow is lifted on this, this conveyor belt doesn't even know it and all of a sudden boom end of story the cow is killed and then later processed now that's not doesn't really get us ready for lunch i know but the the point is is the entire time the cow is tranquil peaceful doesn't know anything is going on everything is fine everything i'm just kind of going along going along my way here and this is what this gentleman says and i think this is very insightful forces are and i quote forces are afoot right now negotiating how to get you fat enough for consumption and how to get you to calmly and without struggle to the cosmic slaughterhouse floor the easiest life for you will be the one in which you don't question these things a life in which you simply do what seems natural the ease of it all will seem to uh, the ease of it all will seem to be further confirmation that this is the way things ought to be it might even seem as though everything is happening exactly as you hoped it would. You might feel as though your life situation is like progressing up a stairway so perfect, it's as though it was designed just for you. And it is. In many ways, the more tranquil you feel, the more endangered you are. The peace that Christ bestows his people is not a tranquil life. It is a fight it involves suffering, it involves opposition, it involves self-denial. Our vindication is not now, our peace, ultimate peace is not now, it is later. Christ gives the peace of a good conscience to the believer, he cleanses the conscience, my peace I give to you. There is a true and genuine inward peace and a knowledge of knowing that our vindication is coming, but that does not equate an easy and pain-free life without distress so beware of tranquility number five reckon in christ you are forgiven and accepted even with all your warring with sin on the inside isn't it interesting that paul follows up romans 7 where he is warring with the sin in his heart and in his life he's warring with it the things i don't want to do i do and vice versa how does he follow up that warring inside of himself in romans 8 1 there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That totally makes sense why he would say that at that point, right? Because your temptation will be to feel condemned as you wrestle with temptation. But in order to make progress, you must have that confidence that you are forgiven in Christ. So recognize that in Christ you are forgiven. Then six, fight the temptation with the truth of God's word. Truth rightly understood and rightly applied. And then finally, and this is just as vital as all of them, confess your sins to God and to one another. Do not attempt to handle temptation and sin on your own. I've only been a Christian for 17 years, but I have seen countless times of men and women fall away from the faith, not because they didn't desire to fight sin, but because they sought to fight sin alone. Do not fight temptation and sin by yourself. Gather your brothers and sisters around you and do it 
together. Let's do it together. Let's make sure that all of us in here see each other in the kingdom. Let's encourage each other with the promise that that kingdom is coming, that Satan will be vanquished, that he has nothing on the Son of God, and because he has nothing on the Son of God, he's got nothing on us. And let's march together confidently, under attack, but confidently into that kingdom with Christ our head. Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are moved by your word today. God, I pray that it would resonate in our hearts, that it would get deep into our hearts. Let us not be caught off guard by tranquility. God, I pray that you would help us to understand these these texts and to recognize how Satan is trying to get after us. Strengthen us by causing us to depend on you. In Jesus' name, amen.